0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 27th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present the next installment of our series, The Protocols of Satan. This is part 31, and it is titled, Jewish Revolutions, French and Bolshevik, as we began to assert last week discussing the French Revolution, mostly from the pages of Nesta Webster. In the last segment of our ongoing series on the Protocols of Satan, we discussed the French Revolution, some of its objectives and outcomes, the Reign of Terror, and the role of the secret society of the Jacobins, who certainly seem to have been the agents of Jewelry, Jewelry not Jewelry. As we demonstrated, it was the Jacobins who forced the issue in the National Assembly, which gave the Jews of France full political rights, a year before they usurped power entirely and declared France to be a republic, initiating the Reign of Terror and the destruction of much of the nobility and the class of the bourgeois. We discussed these things in relation to the boast in the Protocols that quote unquote, under our guidance the people have exterminated aristocracy which was their natural protector and guardian. Then we promised that when we resume our presentation which we are doing here presently that we would continue from that point in the fulfillments which followed the publication of the Protocols. Those fulfillments began to take place with the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution. While here we will focus on the Bolshevik Revolution, let it first be said that the First World War saw the permanent end of the rule of aristocracy in Germany. At the end of the war, Kaiser Wilhelm II who was a staunch opponent of Freemasonry and who certainly also seems to have exhibited a developing awareness of the Jewish problem, was forced to abdicate in favor of what became the Weimar Republic. The Habsburg monarchy in Austria also came to a permanent end with the end of the war. Of course, the Russian monarchy was brought to an end in the Bolshevik revolution during the war. While these nations were all constitutional monarchies, operating democratically to one extent or another, the war brought the end of the greatest monarchies of Europe, and paved the way for absolute democracy, which we have seen is almost entirely under the control of the mostly Jewish banks and international corporations. Before we begin, I have a couple of short digressions to make. First, last week I made some offhand remarks, some between-the-lines remarks, which are not in my notes, about French revolutionary figures Babouf and Proudhon, and I always get confused about when they lived. So I must apologize for that confusion. It was Louis Blank who lived in the era of the Revolution of 1848, an event in which he was a prominent figure and not Babouf or Babouf, who lived during the French Revolution. Blank was a historian and social theorist, turned failed revolutionary leader of 1848. And even though our source material from Nestor Webster mentioned him in citations from his writings, his name always seems to escape me in connection with his political endeavors. I think I sometimes also place Poudhon a little too late as well, but he died in 1830 and did not live until 1848. Secondly, in the past, I have asserted that there is an organic type of socialism, which I consider to be true socialism, which upholds private property rights, which puts the, or keeps the, means of production in the hands of the producers, rather than assigning ownership to the state, or succumbing to the ploys of the capitalists, who are actually Jewish usurers, and upon which the core principles of Adolf, Hitler, Adolf Hitler's National Socialism was founded. I do not retract those assertions, and it does not matter that a system, that such a system was not called socialism, and I never said it was called socialism, but it was nevertheless socialism. With this, I have contended that Marxism was only a perversion of true socialism, and I would still make that contention. However, in the material which we presented from Nesta Webster last week, we saw that Robespierre and his partner St. Just, Robespierre was just such a Marxist several decades before Marx. That does not shake my persuasion, as I have also long ago asserted that Marxism was only the economic expression of Jewish Talmudism. So, of course, Marx himself did not contrive it. However, I was not entirely aware of, or rather, I may have simply forgotten, because I had covered much of this material in the past, the extent to which such a system had surfaced in the writings of Robespierre and his objectives in the French Revolution. So, to me, this helps to further solidify what I have firmly come to believe, that the Jews were behind the French Revolution, which had the same objectives and used the same methods as the later Bolshevik Revolution, and that Robespierre, Saint-Just, and their fellow Jacobins were dupes for Jewry if they were not actual co-conspirators. Once again, the proof is indeed in the pudding. As we will hear Henry Ford say in a different way a little later on this evening, to know who is behind something, we must examine the matters and discover who benefits once the smoke is cleared. At Last week, we concluded that the Jewish-controlled media created the myth of the wonderful French Revolution, which was indeed a failure, and the first Holocaust, or attempted Holocaust, of the modern era. Then we said that a 120 years later in Russia, there was a repeat of the systematized terror, mass arrests, mass killings, prison massacres, the campaign against religion, the specific hatred for Christianity, the church closings and massacres of the priests, the attacks on Christian education, the use of food supplies as a weapon against the people, and the destruction of the bourgeois. We also asserted that on the philosophical side of the Bolshevik Revolution, there was the objective of imposing a one-world humanist government, the eradication of racial distinctions and borders, rabid anti-patriotism and internationalism, economic collectivism, and state socialism. All of these things we have already seen in the French Revolution, from the writings of Nesta Webster and her many sources that they were the objectives of Robespierre and St. Just, the leaders among the Jacobins. Now to show that these same things repeated themselves in the Bolshevik Revolution, we are going to quote some original first-hand sources contemporary to that revolution from the diplomatic reports found in the British white paper known... As Russia number one, this white paper consists of a collection of diplomatic reports filed with the British Foreign Office by various British officers, diplomatic personnel, and citizens who were in Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution. As a digression, thanks to Sword Brethren, with whom we had once done a nine-part series of podcasts on Bolshevism in Russia using the same source several years ago and Mr. Gerald Mosley, who provided a copy of the original paper document from his library. We were able to publish a readable, high-resolution PDF version of this invaluable report on the Internet in 2010. Another friend, whom we will not name here, had made a great contribution of time in assisting us to getting the actual text published, which was accomplished in 2013. While a mostly unintelligible version is found posted at archive.org, ours was the first complete, readable, legible, fairly accurate, and fully searchable publication of this important document on the Internet. It is found at the Mein Kampf Project at Christoginia. We even suspect that the copies found at archive.org were taken from Christoginia or posted in response to our own posting, because they did not appear until twenty twelve and twenty thirteen. When I first posted Russia Number no. One at Christiania, I found no other copy of it on the internet. And the same is true with another US government report on Bolshevism, which was also published in nineteen nineteen, and first made first made available on the internet in 2011 at Christiania, text and facsimile, but that paper is a subject for another day. We must also say that the term Bolshevik Revolution is also a Jewish misnomer. It was not really a revolution, but an invasion and opportunistic takeover of the government when it was most vulnerable. In the end, it only succeeded because of collusion with Jews in the quote-unquote capitalist countries. Because of the nature of the Russian number one reports, they are not national or all-encompassing reports. These are the local perspectives of various individuals, wherever they happened to be when the Bolshevik Revolution took place. The following Few reports were selected because we endeavored to illustrate the parallels between the circumstances of the French and Bolshevik revolutions, and of course we described these circumstances in the French Revolution here in Part 30 of this series, which we presented just last week. The following report, labeled as Number 11, Part 3 was filed by an anonymous Mr. G shortly after he left Petrograd in November of 1918. And Mr. G says that when we turn from the general aims of the Bolshevik policy to the actual situation in the big cities as Petrograd and Moscow at the time when I left, it can be summed up in one word, famine. As regards Petrograd, its population has now come down to 908,000, whereas in 1916 it was estimated at 2.5 to 2.6 million people. Two-thirds of the population have been able to escape to other parts of the country, and the one-third remaining is reduced to starvation. The prices for food have risen to such an extent that all the principal commodities are out of the reach of the buyer. This is 13 months after the beginning of the October Revolution. The amount of food which is allowed by rations is in itself absolutely insufficient to keep up life. And then it is hardly regularly received. Sometimes bread is not received for two days consecutively. Besides, it it must not be forgotten that the Russian population is divided into four classes. The educated and capitalist class being put into the third and fourth category, receiving three or four times less than the workmen and other classes who are in the first and respectable category. Even a workman who gets four times more than others cannot live on his ration and must buy bread and other commodities in an underhand way, the open sale of them being forbidden. In order to give an instance, I wish just to say that an egg cost, when I left, six rubles, a bottle of milk, six or seven rubles, a pound of bread, 14 to 17 rubles. The class which is the best fed is the Red Army and the Bolshevik officers. Food was, and and this is my own note, food was used as a weapon to help foment the French Revolution. The Bolsheviks stripped all Russians of their food, stripped the farmers completely of their grain, often even taking their seed grain, so that they could distribute it to whomever they wished, and used food to compel the people to do their bidding. Here we also see the targeting of the bourgeois and the educated class, the intellectuals, and the lifting up of the lowest classes, just as we had seen in the pages of Nesta Webster describing the French Revolution. Continuing with our report from Mr. G, the foreign press has, as I understand, published some details about the September massacres in Petrograd when more than 1,000 men were shot in Kronstadt and at the Peter Paul Fortress indiscriminately without any trial not even the pretense of a court-martial shot or drowned as was the case with Father Ornatsky the well-known priest of the Kazan Cathedral in Petrograd who was drowned with his two young sons who were officers along with many others. Whereas the shooting in big towns has, during the last months, decreased owing to Lenin's personal dislike of red terrorism. I think our writer is sort of altruistic there. It is continuing in the other provinces where priests, landowners, physicians, rich merchants, lawyers are indiscriminately shot in cold blood without any trial and without any reason besides a general pretext. Of being counter-revolutionists, just as we saw in France. But they weren't shot there, they were beheaded. Arrests and domestic searches are going on as before. There are some thousands of men and women starving in the prisons of Petrograd. Professors of universities, eminent lawyers, priests, generals, officers, ladies of society bankers, etc. There are towns and districts where all the priests who have to wear their hair long in accordance with religious custom now have been forced to have it cut short. In other towns churches have been desecrated and bishops shot or arrested. And now we see the nobility, the clergy, the educated classes, the educators themselves, and the bourgeois were all the special targets of the Bolsheviks, just as they were the special targets of Robespierre and the Jacobins. Another parallel is found in the prison shootings. We saw Nesta Webster's sources describe how people from these classes were rounded up into prisons, and then killed indiscriminately. If perhaps they did not know the secret handshakes and signs of Freemasonry, the fortress of St. Peter and Paul in St. Petersburg, which is Petrograd, was employed for that purpose throughout the Bolshevik Revolution, which is frequently mentioned in Russian Number 1 reports. But the same pattern of events was repeated at other prisons as well, in different parts of the country. Continuing with our report from Mr. G, a special measure in order to complete the humiliation of the bourgeois is compulsorily forced labor, to which all the bourgeois men and women are liable, and which consists in men from 20 to 60 being sent on all sorts of jobs, discharging of coal, cleaning water closets in the soldiers' barracks, digging graves in cemeteries, removing removing cholera-stricken patients, etc., and for the women being obliged to wash the dirty linen of the barracks or other like jobs for a month. In case of the women with delicate health and of elderly men, death from exposure or severe illness after a week or two of such labor, which is usually conducted under the most humiliating conditions, is not seldom. Under the conditions which I have outlined above, it is not astonishing that disaffection is growing, and it must be said that it is growing in all classes of the population. It is evident that the attitude of the educated classes against Bolshevism is one of impotent hatred. The news given out by Bolshevik employees that the intellectual and bourgeois classes have allied themselves with the Bolsheviks is a deliberate falsehood they only did that in america right it is true that thousands upon thousands of these people have been induced to work under the bolsheviks to accept some salaried situation with the government but in respect to the working classes it must be borne in mind that the industrial working man has practically disappeared bolshevism has ruined russian industry The great bulk of the big factories, workshops, or mills do not work for a great many months for want of raw materials. The workmen received from the state full pay for some time, but afterwards had to choose either to return to the villages or enlist in the Red Army. And in most cases, they did the later. The small artisan is starving to death, which explains his anti-Bolshevik attitude. There remains the peasant, far away in his village, rich with paper money and bread, which he does not want to give away. But the Bolsheviks are sending armed expeditions to steal bread, which they want to feed the Red Army. The shooting of peasants every day by the Red Guards coming down for bread is an everyday feature. Revolutions have broken out, and nearly everywhere they are being quelled with blood. When we ask ourselves, who are the classes who support the Bolsheviks? The answer would be that they consist of the people who are fed and paid by the Bolsheviks, the Red Army, and the not less numerous army of paid government officials, the Jews. All of them are paid more and fed better than the population amongst whom they live. And with the present food conditions, it is not astonishing that they stick to the Bolsheviks. The Red Army and the numerous army of different commissioners have also an unlimited opportunity of plundering the peaceful population of which they avail themselves to an extent which, in the small provincial towns in the country, is simply terrifying, and which brings around the Bolsheviks all the lowest classes of the population. On the other hand, it must not be forgotten that Bolshevism had for many years its best recruits from among the young workmen of big factories, who, as stated above, have now enlisted in the Red Army and who form the socialist nucleus of the state. The Bolsheviks were the majority socialist party in the Russian Duma for several years before the revolution. While the turn of events did not get quite as bad in France, perhaps that is only because Robespierre himself was sent to the guillotine in 1794, an event which ended his proto-Marxist designs for the Republic and may have spared millions of people. However, the pattern of things in France certainly foreshadowed these circumstances under the Bolsheviks to a great degree. In our last presentation, we saw that the French Revolution had also destroyed French industry, and that millions of workmen were left idle. The food supplies had dwindled, and much of the population was left starving. As a result of this, the Jacobins had planned on eliminating as many as two-thirds of the people, a plan which Nesta Webster had documented from various contemporary sources. While such a genocide was never successfully executed in Robespierre's France, In the first 20 years of communist rule in Russia, millions of people were indeed eliminated in the process of collectivization and the organized terror famines of the 1920s and 1930s, especially in the Ukraine. Continuing with our report, all political parties, says Mr. G, are declared to be outside the pale of the law as counter-revolutionary. And the old socialist parties, if they try to make public opposition to the Bolshevist tyranny, fare no better than the liberal parties. Especially the Socialist Revolutionary Party is subject to the most violent and bloody persecution. Under these circumstances, can it astonish anyone that public opinion, terrorized by imprisonment and numberless executions, remains dumb. And, of course, the Bolsheviks were eliminating their competition as they were constantly quarreling with the Mensheviks and the other parties, even when those party members were Jews. And very much like the Bolsheviks, the Jacobins, during the the reign of terror, had seized absolute power of the government in France and persecuted monarchists as well as those of the other political parties the herbertists the girondins considering that they were hostile to the revolution continuing again with our report mr g says that it will it must not be forgotten that the bolsheviks had formed small committees just like the French Committee of Public Safety, the Bolsheviks had formed small committees of the so-called poorest peasants in each village, who are armed with rifles, and often machine guns, and who, being representative of the proletariat, have to exercise the dictatorship of the people over the village bourgeois, making up the majority of peasants. The well-to-do peasant is thus completely excluded from any public activity, and is kept terrorized by these committees, which in many cases are composed of the worst elements of the village, drunkards, ex-convicts, etc. Further, it cannot be doubted that the Russian people are worn out by the war and by the revolution. And that the love of peace, which was always a permanent feature of its national character, has been enhanced and has developed itself into an attitude of dumb suffering. And the French Revolution also enlisted the scum and dregs of French society to assist its cause. In addition to the organized terror were what Nesta Webster had described as vigilantes and other self-proclaimed representatives of the republic who also imposed terror on the people of the countryside. The pattern of enlisting the lowest class of people to persecute others is one that the Jews have been using since the dawn of time. We find an example in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, where the Jews of Thessalonica sought to persecute Paul of Tarsus. And Luke writes that, then the Jews, being jealous and taking certain wicked men from the markets, making a riot through the city into confusion, and coming upon the house of Jason, sought to lead them, meaning Paul and his companions, before the people. But the Bolsheviks were somewhat more sophisticated. To start their revolution, they employed mercenaries from among both the Chinese and the Latvians who were both enemies of the Russians. Once they obtained a hold over sufficient of the Russian people, they enlisted them through methods of reward in food or clemency, or some comfortable position, or through extortion of one form or another into joining the Bolshevik cause. Continuing with our report. The impartial reader of the Bolshevist press, and it must be taken into consideration that there does not exist any press with the exception of the official one now in Russia can read in these official papers every day articles and information about local revolts which happen daily in various parts of the country mostly villages where peasants rise in an an entirely unorganized way against the power of the Soviet. In the second part of November such revolts have taken place in nearly all the districts of the government of Moscow, and were suppressed mercilessly by the Red Army, composed to a considerable degree of Chinese and Letts, or Latvians. As regards food distribution, it is admitted even by the Bolsheviks that in no department of government there is so much corruption as among the numberless officials who control the Food Administration. The organization of the food distribution is, of course, mainly governed by the fact that there is scarcely any food to be distributed. Russian industry is dead for the moment, and the Russian industrial workman has ceased to exist as a class for the time being. It is an extremely curious feature of the Russian Revolution that a movement which has proclaimed itself as social and democratic has achieved in the first instance total destruction of those social groups on which a social democratic organization is mainly based the class of the industrial workmen all factories all the important ones with a few exceptions of those who are still engaged on munition work are stopped and the industrial workman had either to return to the village with which he had more ties in common or to enlist in the red army The younger generation of workmen, aged 19 to 26 years, have to a great extent chosen the second alternative, and it is they who form the Bolshevik nucleus of the Red Army. To speak of the growing success of the management of industrial concerns by Soviet is an absolute misrepresentation it would be sufficient in order to disprove this statement to cite the instance of the most important factories and works in petrograd moscow and nishni where factories which engaged usually many thousands occupy now a few hundred men as regards petrograd the number of executions is usually taken at 1300 though the bolshevik admitted only 500 But then they do not take into account many hundreds of officers, former civil servants and private individuals, who were shot in Kronstadt and and in the Peter and Paul Fortress in Petrograd, without any special order from the central authorities, by the discretion of the local Soviet. Four hundred were shot during one night in Kronstadt alone. Three big graves were dug in the courtyard, and the four hundred placed before that, Then they were shot one after another. The extraordinary commission of Petrograd had on the orders of the day, one of their sittings, the day of one of their sittings, the question of the application of torture. It is common knowledge that the unfortunate Jewish student who killed Britozky was tortured three or four times before his execution. The Obukov works were, in their majority, supporters of the Social Revolutionary Party, or of other moderate socialist organizations. They summoned a meeting of the workmen at which, by an overwhelming majority, a resolution was carried insisting upon the Bolsheviks putting an end to the civil war and reconstructing the government on lines which would admit the participation of all socialistic parties. The Bolsheviks answered with a general lockout of the workmen and the closing of the Obukov works. The population is everywhere, divided into four classes for purposes of rationing. The middle and parasitic classes, being in the 3rd or 4th divisions, getting one-quarter or one-eighth of the rations, accorded to the workmen and the clerks. But even these rations remain mostly on paper, as there is not enough food to give to them. And roves had also perceived the middle class as being a parasitic class. In every way, the first Bolshevik revolution was the Jacobin reign of terror in France. It just wasn't as efficient, and it was a failure. But the Jews would not repeat the same mistakes in Russia. In any event, the boast of the protocols in this regard in relation to the past is demonstrably true, and within 20 years of their publication, the same plan was executed once again in Russia, with far greater efficiency and far greater success. While well, this particular report from Russia No. 1 was fairly well balanced and complete in its presentation of all of the aspects of the revolution which we are presently discussing. Many of the other reports from various places in Russia corroborate it independently, and when they are compiled, this report is fully corroborated in every way. We will only have the time to present a few of those here. The following is a Shorter report from one Mr. Alston to Earl Curzon. It is listed as number 26 in Russia number one. It was filed by Telegraph from Vladivostok, Russia on January twenty-third, 1919, two or three months after Mr. G's report, perhaps a little over two months later. He says that the following statements... Mr. Alston says that the following statements respecting Bolsheviks in Perm and neighborhood or and its environs are taken from reports sent from or by I'm sorry His Majesty's Council at Ekaterinburg. The Omsk government has similar information. The Bolsheviks can no longer be described as a political party holding extreme communistic view. They form relatively small privileged class, which is able to terrorize the rest of the population because it has a monopoly both of arms and of food supplies. This class consists chiefly of workmen and soldiers and included a large non-Russian element, such as Letts, or Latvians, and Estonians and Jews. The later are specifically numerous in higher posts. Members of this class are allowed complete license and commit crimes against other sections of society. The army is well disciplined, as a most strict system especially is applied to it. It is generally said that officers are forced to serve because their families are detained as hostages. The population of Perm was rations and non-Bolsheviks received only one quarter pound of bread per day. The peasantry suffered less, but were forbidden under pain of death to sell food to any but Bolsheviks. The churches were closed, for many priests were killed, and a bishop was buried alive. This and other barbarous punishments, such as dipping people in rivers till they were frozen to death, Those condemned to be shot were let out several times, and fired at with blank cartridges, never knowing when the real execution would take place. Many other atrocities are reported. The Bolsheviks apparently were guilty of wholesale murder in Perm, and it is certain that they had begun to operate a plan of systematic extermination. On a lamp above a building were the words, Only those who fight shall eat. And speaking of Omsk, which was mentioned here, Report number 47, filed by General Knox on March second, 1919, said in part that in the near future the Bolsheviks intend closing all the churches. Three priests were recently drowned by the Reds in Osa. And another report, number forty nine, detailing events which took place in Perm and Omsk, and filed by one Sir C. Elliot, on march fifth, nineteen nineteen, said in part that murders were frequently preceded by tortures and acts of cruelty. Laborers at Omsk, before being shot, were flogged and beaten with butts of rifles and pieces of iron, in order to extract evidence victims were frequently forced to dig their own graves sometimes executioners placed them facing a wall and fired several revolver shots from behind them near their ears killing them after considerable interval persons who survived this gave evidence in other words that's where these reports came from In France, a certain percentage of the proletariat were also killed, ostensibly those who supported the monarchy or had right-wing sympathies. As we shall see shortly from the pages of the International Jew, the only proletariat the Bolsheviks really represented was a proletariat of the Jews. Continuing with this particular report from Sir Eliot, Girls, aged women, and women encientes, or pregnant women, were amongst victims. A case of Miss Bakuyeva is an example. In December nineteen eighteen, this lady, aged nineteen, was accused of espionage and tortured by being slowly pierced thirteen times in the same wound by a bayonet. She was afterwards found by peasants still alive, is now nearly cured, and has herself related her sufferings to us. Bolsheviks Bolshevists vented violent hatred on church and clergy, pillaged monasteries such as Bilogorod and Bilogorsky, turned churches into meeting places and workshops, persecuted and murdered priests and monks. Of 300 priests in liberated parts of Perm diocese, 46 were killed by Bolshevists. I'm sure the rest were probably killed down the road. Many similar reports are found throughout the pages of Russia No. 1, including those which report the murders of the Romanovs, the Russian royal family. We will not repeat them here. We will only conclude that without a doubt, the French and Bolshevik revolutions had the same objectives, the same underlying philosophy, and were orchestrated by the same people. In the French Revolution, they remained in the shadows, but in the Bolshevik Revolution, they assumed all of the leading roles, even if many of them hid behind pseudonyms and pretended not to be Jews. Now we shall continue with the protocols and the very next portion of protocol number three, from the text of Boris Brassall's publication, the protocols and world revolution excuse me protocol number three we on the contrary are concerned in the opposite in the degeneration of the goys our power lies in the chronic malnutrition and in the weakness of the worker because through this he falls under our power and is unable to find either strength or energy to combat it and we just saw this in the Russian number one reports we just saw this tactic of using food in order to control the masses and to get them to fight on your side I shouldn't have to repeat anything to prove this portion of the protocols is exactly what the Jews did in Russia. Hunger gives to capital greater power over the worker than the legal authority of the sovereign ever gave to the aristocracy. Through misery and the resulting jealous hatred, we manipulate the mob and crush those who stand in our way. Just as all those idle workers, as we have just seen described, joined the Red Army because that was the only way that they would be assured food. So they willingly signed right up with the Bolsheviks so that they could feed their bellies. When the time comes for our universal ruler to be crowned, the same hands will sweep away everything which may be an obstacle in our way. In other words, they will use the same hungry goyim to assure their ultimate victory. And of course, looking at the state of our own people today, it's very believable that they would be effective at doing just that. They just haven't needed to do it here in this country yet. Some of these aspects of the protocols have already been included in these discussions from the French and Bolshevik revolutions. We need not repeat them. Now, in order to further demonstrate the veracity of this part of the Jewish plan for world domination... We are going to present an article from the International Jew titled Jewish Testimony in Favor of Bolshevism. The article is useful at this point because, among other things, it proves that Jews were behind the Bolshevik Revolution. It discusses, from the aspect of world Jewry, the imagined dichotomy between Bolshevism and capitalism, how they are really how they really worked together to affect total Jewish domination of the world, and the advancement of the plan set forth in the Protocols, which was achieved by both the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution. The article is prefaced with excerpts from another Jewish article that ran in a publication called the American Hebrew, which is, of course, another Jewish misnomer. And our article from the Dearborn Independent addresses, for the most part, this article from the, I hate to call it this, the the American Hebrew newspaper. It's not American, and it's certainly not Hebrew. The article says, and it's basically a Jewish boast and a Jewish admission, It says that out of the economic chaos, the discontent of the Jew evolved organized capital with his working, with its working instrumentality, the banking system. One of the impressive phenomena of the impressive time, and yes, that's their redundancy, is the revolt of the Jew against the Frankenstein, which his own mind conceived and his own hand fashioned that achievement meaning the russian bolshevik revolution and that's a note from the editors of the dearborn independent that achievement destined to figure in history as the overshadowing result of the world war was largely the outcome of jewish thinking of jewish discontent of jewish effort to reconstruct what jewish idealism and jewish discontent have so Powerfully contributed to accomplish in Russia, and this is a 1920 admission by a Jewish publication that the Jews were behind the Bolshevik Revolution. The same historic qualities of the Jewish mind and heart are tending to promote in other countries. Shall America, like the Russia of the Tsars, overwhelm the Jew with the bitter and baseless reproach of being a destroyer? and thus put him, meaning the Jew, in the position of an irreconcilable enemy? Or shall America avail itself of Jewish genius, as it avails itself of the peculiar genius of every other race? That is the question for the American people to answer. And that's from an article in the American Hebrew, dated September 10, 1920. The Dearborn Independent will discuss below this admission on the part of the American Hebrew that the Bolshevik Revolution was a Jewish achievement. But, before we begin, we shall only comment that this entire attitude projected by the American Hebrew is premised upon several big lies at which the Jews are expert. The Jew did not create modern European civilization. For the most part, the medieval Christian would have nothing to do with usury. Capitalism is organized usury. And being an anti-Christian concept, it was left to the Jew. When greedy members of the nobility thought to profit more greatly from the Jews, capitalism eventually prevailed. The old systems were not necessarily chaotic. They were only chaotic to Jews they were organized in a way which benefited the common people in each locality over the Jew who had no easy control. The Jew only organizes usury-based economies for his own benefit never for the benefit of mankind in general. Now to commence with our article which was published in the Dearborn Independent on October 2nd 1920. It begins by answering the assertions in the American Hebrew Jewish testimony in favor of Bolshevism. The American people will answer that question, and their answer will be against the disruptive genius of dissatisfied Jews. And of course, Henry Ford, and and he may not have written this, but as is our practice, he took credit for it, so we will attribute it to him. Henry Ford was had too great of an opinion of the American people, evidently, because they have been whores for the Jew. They have been whores for the Jew for a hundred years. There's no doubt. They caved in, buckled, and now they worship Jews instead of Jesus. He continues, and he says, "...it is very well known that what Jewish idealism and Jewish discontent have so powerfully contributed to accomplish in Russia is also being attempted in the United States. Why did not the writer in the American Hebrew say the United States, instead of saying the same historic qualities of the Jewish mind and heart are are tending to promote in other countries?" Jewish idealism and Jewish discontent are not directed against capital. Capital is there is enlisted in their service. The only governmental order the Jewish effort is directed against is Gentile governmental order, and the only capital it attacks is Gentile capital. Lord Eustace Percy who, if one may judge by the full and appreciative quotations of his words in the Jewish press, has the sanction of thinkers among the Jews, settles the first point. Discussing the Jewish tendency to revolutionary movements, he says, In Eastern Europe, Bolshevism and Zionism often seem to grow side by side, just as Jewish influence molded Republican and socialist thought throughout the 19th century down to the Young Turk Revolution in Constantinople hardly more than a decade ago not because the Jew cares for the positive side of radical philosophy not because he desires to be a partaker in Gentile nationalism or Gentile democracy but because no existing Gentile system of government is anything but distasteful to him there you have it There you have the reason for all the Jews jumping on the bandwagon of the alt-right. It is clear that in 18th century France, republicanism was the device by which the monarchy was destroyed and the Catholic Church in France nearly eliminated, all of which are objectives desired by the secret societies as well as by the authors of the protocols. Back to the Dearborn Independent, where it speaks of a later time. And that analysis is absolutely true. In Russia, the excuse was the Tsar. In Germany, the Kaiser. In England, it is the Irish question. In the numerous South American revolutions where the Jews always had a ruling hand, no particular reason was thought necessary to be given. In the United States, it is the capitalist class. But always and everywhere it is, by the confession of their own spokesmen, a distaste for any form whatsoever of gentile government the jew believes that the world is by his is his by right and he wants to collect his own and the speediest way of doing so is the destruction of order by revolution a destruction which is made possible by long a long and clever campaign of loose and destructive ideas the jew does believe that the world is his by right in Luke chapter 4, speaking of Joshua Christ, we read, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it I will. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered him, and said unto him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Demonstrably. Demonstrably. That's kind of like a pun. That devil was also a Jew, and certainly did believe that the world was his by right. Now the assertion is codified in the Talmud. Returning to our source, as to the second point, every reader can verify the fact from his own experience. Let him recall to his mind the capitalists who have been held up to public scorn in the Jew-controlled press of the United States. And whom does he find them to be? Whose forms have you seen caricatured with the dollar mark in Hearst's newspapers? Are they Seligman, Kahn, Warburg, Schiff, Kuhn, Loeb and Company, or any of the others, No, these are Jewish bankers. The attack is never made on them. The names made most familiar to you by newspaper denunciation are the names of Gentile industrial and banking leaders, and Gentile leaders only, the principal ones being Morgan and Rockefeller. And I must make a note here we must understand that many people today are persuaded that both Rockefeller and Morgan were also Jews but they were not considered Jews in their own time and Henry Ford certainly did not consider them to be Jews so whether they are truly Jews or not is irrelevant to Mr. Ford he did not consider them to be Jews and it was they who were constantly derided by the jewish newspapers while the jewish bankers and industrialists always got a free ride that's the point that henry ford is making here continuing with the dearborn independent it is a well-known fact that during the french commune when men of wealth suffered severe losses in property the jewish rothschilds were not injured to the extent of one penny's worth it is also a well-known fact capable of proof satisfactory to to any ordinary mind, that the connections between Jewish financiers and the more dangerous revolutionary elements here in the United States are such that that it is most unlikely that the former stand to lose anything in any event. Under cover of the disorder in Russia at the present time, Jewish financiers are taking advantage of the stress of the people to gain control of all the strategic natural resources and municipal property by methods which they are fully expect that which they fully expect to be legalized by Jewish courts when the present Bolshevik regime announces that it will give way to a quote unquote modified communism. The world hasn't seen the end of Bolshevism yet. Like the World War, Bolshevism cannot be interpreted until it is seen who profits by it most. And the profiteering is in full sway now. The enemy is Gentile capital, not any other. And all the wealth of the world is in our hands is the unspoken slogan of every Jewish outbreak in the world today. And of course today, Jewish oligarchs own all Russian industry to this very day. Only they could buy it up for a song and a dance when the Soviet Union supposedly collapsed and sold off its state property. It was all bought by Jews. They have it to this very day and once again the proof is in the pudding. Ford continues, the quotation at the head of this article represents the position which the Jews are now ready to take with reference to the Russian Revolution. They have always been charged with responsibility for what has occurred in an unhappy country, but at first their spokesman denied it. The denials were most indignant and were usually accompanied by the typical complaint that the charge was persecution. But the facts have been so overwhelming, and the government investigations have been so revealing, that denials have been abandoned. For a while, an attempt was made to distract attention from Russia by a tremendously powerful propaganda concerning the Jews in Poland. There are many indications that the Polish propaganda was undertaken as a cover for the immense immigration of Jews in the United States. It may be that some of our readers do not know it, but an endless stream of the most undesirable immigrants pours daily into the United States. Tens of thousands of the same people whose presence has been a problem and a menace of the governments of Europe. And we have documentation, which we hope to present a synopsis of here in the near future, that by 1914, there were one and a quarter million Jews in New York City alone. Of course, Jews were immigrating into other areas as well, all along the eastern seaboard, as far as Galveston, Texas. But the number of Jews and Jewish organizations which sprung up in New York City in a very short time is quite shocking, to say the least. Continuing with Ford's article. Well, the Polish propaganda and the immigration movement are sailing along smoothly, and the United States government is assured by the Jewish ring at Washington that everything is quiet along the Potomac. It is quiet there, quiet as the Jewish ring could wish, but still the Russian fact persists in calling for explanation. And there were actually many dozens of pleas in newspapers in the United States, and especially in the New York Times. From The early 1900s through 1920 and beyond, that something must be done about the Holocaust of six million Jews in Poland, Ukraine, and Russia. All of it was propaganda, as the Jews were never threatened in those areas outside of the normal course of the war. And when the Bolsheviks took control of Russia, they closed the Christian churches and slaughtered the priests, but they never closed the synagogues, or molested the rabbis. Continuing with Henry Ford, and there will be documentation of that statement included with our notes to this podcast. And here is the explanation. The Jews created capitalism, we are told, but capitalism has proved itself ill-behaved. So now the Jewish creators are going to destroy their creation. They have done so in Russia. And now will the American people be good and let their Jewish benefactors do the same in America? That is the new explanation, and typically Jewish again. It is coupled with a proposal for the United States and a threat. If America refuses this particular service of the Jew, we put him in a position of an irreconcilable enemy. See the quotation at the head of this article, referring to the American Hebrew. But the Jews have not destroyed capitalism in Russia. When Lenin and Trotsky make their farewell bow and retire under the protective influence of the Jewish capitalists of the world, it will be seen that only Gentile or Russian capital has been destroyed, and that Jewish capital has been enthroned. What is the record? Documents printed by the United States government contain this letter. Please note the date, the Jewish banker, and the Jewish names. Stockholm, September 21st, 1917, to Mr. Raphael Scholan Dear Comrade, The Banking House, M. Warburg, opened an account for the enterprise of Comrade Trotsky upon receipt of a telegram from the chairman of the Rhine-Westphalian Syndicate. A lawyer, probably Mr. Kestrov, obtained ammunition and organized the transportation of the same, together with that of the money, to whom the sum demanded by Comrade Trotsky is to be handed. Fraternal greetings, and it's signed with only one name, Furstenberg. Ford continues, and he says that long before that, an American Jewish financier was supplying the funds which carried revolutionary propaganda to thousands of Russian prisoners of war in Japanese camps. It is sometimes said, by way of explaining the Bolshevik movement, that it was financed from Germany, a fact which was seized upon to supply war propaganda. It is true that part of the money came from Germany. It is true that part of the money came from the United States. It is the whole truth that Jewish finance in all the countries was interested in Bolshevism as an all-Jewish investment. For the whole period of the war, the Jewish world program was cloaked under this or that national name, the blame being laid on the Germans by the Allies, and on the Allies by the Germans, and the people kept in ignorance of who the real personages were. It was stated by a French official that two millions of money was contributed by one Jewish banker alone. When Trotsky left the United States to fulfill his appointed task, he was released from arrest at Halifax, upon request to the United States and everyone knows who constituted the war government of the United States led by the Jew Edward Mandelhouse the conclusion when all the facts are considered is irresistible that the Bolshevik revolution was a carefully groomed investment on a part of international Jewish finance it is easy to understand then why the same forces would like to introduce it to the United States The real struggle in this country is not between labor and capital. The real struggle is between Jewish capital and Gentile capital. With the IWW leaders, the labor union which is still in prominent operation, the industrial workers of the world, the socialist leaders, the red leaders, and the labor leaders almost a unit on the side of the Jewish capitalists. Again, recall which financiers these men attack most. You cannot recall a single Jewish name. The main purpose in these two articles, however, is to introduce the Jewish testimony which exists as to the Jewish nature of Bolshevism. The Jewish Chronicle of London said in 1919, There is much in the fact of Bolshevism itself and the fact that so many Jews are Bolsheviks, and the fact that the ideals of Bolshevism at many points are consonant with the finest ideals of Judaism. In the same paper of 1920 is a report of an address made by Israel Zangwill, a noted Jewish writer, in which he pronounced glowing praise on the race which had produced a Beaconsfield, a Redding, a Montague, a Klotz, a Kurt Eisner, a Trotsky. Mr. Zangwill, in his swelling Semitic enthusiasm, another misnomer, but that's okay, embraced the Jews and the British government in the same category with the Jews of the Hungarian and Russian Bolshevik governments. What is the difference? They are all Jewish, and all of equal honor and usefulness to the race meaning the race of Jews. And this devil, Zangwill, was noted for the melting pot, a theatrical production aimed at spreading race-mixing propaganda throughout America. Of course, Vladimir Lenin was also a Jew, but that was not commonly known until relatively recently. For many decades, the Jews themselves denied that Lenin was a Jew, and his Jewiness was able to remain concealed. Ford continues, and he says that Rabbi J.L. Magnus, in an address at New York in 1919, is reported to have said, When the Jew gives his thought, his devotion to the cause of the workers and of the dispossessed, of the disinherited of the world, the radical quality within him goes to the roots of things, and in Germany he becomes a Marx and a LaSalle, a Hass and an Edward Bernstein. In Austria, he becomes a Victor Adler and a Friedrich Adler. In Russia, a Trotsky. Just take for a moment the present situation in Russia and in Germany. The revolution set creative forces free and see what a large company of Jews was available for immediate service. Socialist revolutionaries and the Mensheviki, the Bolsheviki, majority and minority socialists, whatever they be called, Jews are are to be found among the trusted leaders and the routine workers of all these revolutionary parties. See, says the rabbi, what a large company of Jews are available for immediate service. One ought to see where he points. There are as many Jewish members of revolutionary societies in the United States as there were in Russia. And here, as there, they are available for immediate service. Bernard Lazar, a Jewish writer who has published a work on anti-Semitism, says, The Jew, therefore, does take a part in revolutions, and he participates in them insofar as he is a Jew, or more correctly, insofar as he remains a Jew. He also says, The Jewish spirit is essentially a revolutionary spirit, and consciously or otherwise, the Jew is a revolutionist there is hardly any country in the world except the united states where denials of this could be made in such a way as to require proof in every other country the fact is known here we have been under such a fear of mentioning the word jew or anything pertaining to it that the commonest facts have been kept from us facts which even a superficial knowledge of jewish writing would have given us It was almost a pathetic spectacle to see American audiences go to lectures about the Russian situation and come away from the hall confused and perplexed because the Russian situation is so un-Russian, and all because no lecturer thought it politic to mention Jew in the United States. For, as someday we shall see, the Jew has strived to gain control of that platform, too. Not only do the literary lights of Jewry acknowledge the Jew's propensity to revolution generally, and his responsibility for the Russian situation particularly, but the lower lights have also a very clear idea about it. The Jew in the midst of the revolution is conscious that somehow he is advancing the cause of Israel. And, of course, that, too, is a misnomer. He may be a bad Jew in the synagogue sense, but he is enough of a Jew to be willing to do anything that would advance the prestige of Israel. Unfortunately, Ford did not understand that the Jews were not Israel, even though he did make the statement once and he says that race is stronger than religion in Jewry. He continues and he says the Russian paper on to Moscow in September 1919 said it should not be forgotten that the Jewish people who for centuries were oppressed by kings and czars are the real proletariat, the real international which has no country. Mr. Cohen in the newspaper Communist in April 1919, said, Without exaggeration, it may be said that the great Russian social revolution was indeed accomplished by the hands of the Jews. Would the dark, oppressed masses of the Russian workmen and peasants have been able to throw off the yoke of the bourgeois by themselves? No, it was precisely the Jews who led the Russian proletariat to the dawn of the international and not only have led, but are also now leading the Soviet cause, which remains safe in their hands. We may be quiet as long as the chief command of the Red Army is in the hands of Comrade Leon Trotsky. It is true that there are no Jews in the ranks of the Red Army as far as privates are concerned. But in the committees and Soviet organizations, as commissars, the Jews are gallantly leading the masses of the Russian proletariat to victory. It is not without reason that during the elections to all Soviet institutions, the Jews are winning by an overwhelming majority. The symbol of Jewry, which for centuries has struggled against capitalism, has also become the symbol of the Russian proletariat, which can be seen even in the adoption of the red five-pointed star, which in former times, as it is well known, was the symbol of Zionism and Jewry. With this sign comes victory. With this sign comes the death of the parasites of the bourgeois. Jewish tears will come out of them in sweat of drops of blood. Ford says that this confession, or rather boast, is remarkable for its completeness. And we must add that the remark may have been found in the protocols, as all these remarks are worthy of such inclusion, or actually reflect things actually already found in them. And Ford continues, and he says, that The Jews, says Mr. Cohen, are in control of the Russian masses, the Russian masses who have never risen at all, who only know that a minority like the czar's minority, is in control at the seat of government. The Jews are not in the Red Army, Mr. Cohen informs us. That is, in the ranks where the actual fighting is done. And this is strictly in line with the protocols. The strategy of the world program is to set Gentiles to kill Gentiles. This was the Jewish boast during the various French social disasters that so many Frenchmen had been set killing each other so we see Henry Ford made a connection of Bolshevism to the French revolutions even if it is not so explicit he continues where he, where we are certain he has typically underestimated the number of Jews in the world in spite of the fact that 38 million people are believed to have died in the First World War but the Jews I'm sorry I'm trying to skip the paragraph. In the world war just passed, there are as many Gentiles killed by Gentiles as there are Jews in the world. It was a great victory for Israel. And I hate calling it that. I'm sorry. The Jews are far from Israel. Jewish tears will come out of them in sweat of drops of blood. But the Jews are in the places of control and safety, says Mr. Cohan. And he is absolutely right about it. The wonder is that he was so honest as to say it. As to the election, so-called, at which the Jews are so unanimously chosen, the literature of Bolshevism is very explicit. Those who voted against the Jewish candidates were adjudged enemies of the revolution and executed. It did not require many executions at a voting place to make all the elections unanimous. Mr. Cohen, is especially instructive on the significance of the red star, the five-pointed emblem of Bolshevism, the symbol of Jewry, he says, has also become the symbol of the Russian proletariat. The star of David, the Jewish national emblem, is a six-pointed star, formed by two triangles, one standing on its base and the other on its apex. Deprived of their baseline, These triangles approximate the familiar Masonic emblem of the square and compass. It is this Star of David, of which a Jewish observer in Palestine remarks, that there are so few among the graves of the British soldiers who won Palestine in the recent war, most of the signs of the familiar wooden cross. These crosses are now reported to be objectionable to the new rulers of Palestine because they are so plainly in view of the visitor who approaches the new Jewish University. As in Soviet Russia, so in Palestine, not many Jews laid down their lives for the cause. There were plenty of Gentiles for that purpose. As the Jew is a past master in the art of symbolism, it may not be without significance that the Bolshevik star has one point less than the Star of David. For there is still one point to be filled in the world program as outlined in the protocols and that is the enthronement of quote unquote our leader when he comes the world autocrat for whom the whole program is framed the sixth point may be added and we had just read in protocol number three where it says that when the time comes for our universal ruler to be crowned the same hands will sweep away everything which may be an obstacle in our way, referring to those goyim cannon fodder. Continuing with Henry Ford, the five points of the star, now apparently assured, are the purse, the press, the peerage, the Palestine, and proletarianism. The sixth point will be the Prince of Israel. So every point begins with a P and there's P all over it. That's my pun. It is very hard to say. It is hard to believe. But Mr. Cohen has said it and revolutions especially since the French Revolution confirm it, that with this sign comes the death of the parasites of the bourgeois. Jewish tears will come out of them in sweat of drops of blood. The bourgeois as the protocols say are always gentile again ford makes the connection between the bolshevik and french revolutions and he continues and he says the common counterargument to the invincible fact of the jewish character of the russian revolution an argument which is destined to disappear now that jewish acknowledgement is coming thick and fast is that the jews in russia suffer too how can we favor a movement which makes our own people suffer is the argument put up to the Gentile. Well, the fact is this, they are favoring that movement. Today, this very moment, the Bolshevik government is receiving money from Jewish financiers in Europe, and if in Europe, then of course from the international Jewish bankers in America also. That is one fact. Another is this, the Jews of Russia are not suffering to anywhere near the extent we are told by the propagandists. It is now a fact admitted by Jews themselves that upon the first sweep of the Bolshevists across Poland, the Polish Jews were friendly with the invaders and helped them. The fact was explained by American Jews in this manner. Since Bolshevism came to Russia, the condition of the Jews there has greatly improved. Therefore the Polish Jews were friendly. And it is true, the condition of Russian Jews is good. One reason is, they have Russia. Everything there belongs to them. The other reason is that the Jews of Russia are the only ones receiving help there today. Did that second statement ever strike you as significant? Only the Jews of Russia have food and money sent to them. It is one form, of course, of the support which the Jewish world is giving Bolshevism. But, if the suffering among the Jews is what the propagandists say it is, what must it be among the Russians? Yet no one is sending food or money to them. The probable truth of the whole situation is that the is that Jewish Bolshevism is laying a tax on the world, and time any time it may be required, there is plenty of evidence as to the good condition of the Jews in Russia. They have all there is another source of confusion is revealed in a question. How can Jewish capitalists support Bolshevism when Bolshevism is against capitalism? Bolshevism, as stated before, is only against Gentile capitalism. Jewish financiers who remained in Russia are very useful to the Bolsheviki. Read this description by an eyewitness. A Jew is this commissary of the bank, very elegant, with a cravat of the latest style, and a fancy waistcoat. A Jew is this district commissary, former stockbroker, with a double bourgeois chin. Again, a Jew, this inspector of taxes. He understands perfectly how to squeeze the bourgeois. These agents of Jewry are still there. Other agents are among the Russians who fled, getting their lands away from them on mortgage loans when the curtain lifts most of the choice real estate will be found to have passed into jewish control by perfectly quote-unquote legal means that is one answer to the question why the jew capitalists support bolshevism the red revolution is the greatest speculative event of human history besides it is for the exaltation of israel there we go again It is a colossal revenge, which the Jews always take where they can, for wrongs, real or imaginary. Jewish capitalism knows exactly what it is doing. It's really Genesis 15, right? Genesis 3.15, I'm sorry. Genesis 3.15 is what's really going on. Henry Ford didn't have that much insight. Jewish capitalism knows exactly what it is doing. What are its gains? It has taken a whole rich country without the cost of war. It has demonstrated the necessity of gold. Jewish power rests on the fiction that gold is wealth. By the premeditated clumsiness of the Bolshevik monetary system, the unthinking world has been made to believe still more strongly that gold is necessary, and this belief gives Jewish capitalism another hold on the Gentile world. If the Bolshevists had been honest, they could have dealt Jewish capitalism its death blow. No, gold is still on the throne. Destroy the fiction that gold has value, and you leave the Jewish international financiers sitting forlorn on the heaps of useless metal. And of course, from 1932, Adolf Hitler did exactly that. But for his achievement, he had to be destroyed. Gentile against Gentile. Three, it has demonstrated its power to the world. Protocol 7 says, to demonstrate our enslavement of the Gentile governments of Europe, we will show our power to one of them by crimes of violence, that is, a reign of terror has Europe sufficiently shown? has Europe been sufficiently shown? Europe has and is afraid that is a great gain for Jewish capitalists and of course Hitler tried to withstand a warning not the least of the gains is the field practice in the art of revolution which Russia has offered students of that red school are coming back to the United States the technique of revolution has been reduced to a science according to the details laid down in the protocols. To use Rabbi Magnus's words again, see what a large company of Jews was available for immediate service. The available company is now much larger. And that includes this Dearborn Independent article from the issue of October 2nd, 1920. Of course, today, This company of Jews seems to be half of the population, as every degenerate and every bastard joins himself to their cause. Now in America, we have suffered a series of many revolutions and they are not even close to being finished. The next big one always seems to be just around the corner. This concludes our presentation. Perhaps one more segment, I hope, I pray, and we will finally be able to... Complete our examination of protocol number three. Twenty twenty-two to go, I believe, that they hopefully won't take quite as long to present. Praise Yahweh, the God of true Israel, and not the Jews. Thank you for listening, and good night. <laughs>
1: Don't you know that I love you, in a God of a feet, baby, don't you know that I'll always be true, oh, won't you